train with an arm full of boxcars on the wings of a magpipe across a hooligan night. Busted up a chaperone way out by the Kokomo. Cooked up a mess of mulligans and got into a fight. Whistling past the graveyard, stepping on a crack. I'm a mean mother hubba, pop a one-eyed jack. You've probably seen me sleeping out by the railroad tracks. Ask the Prince of Darkness about the smoke from the stack. Sometimes I kill a jackal and suck out all the blood. Steal myself a station wagon, driving it to the mine. Welcome to the Horror Comics Podcast. This is Chris, and uh, obviously, if you've been listening to the show, you know that this intro is a little bit different, and it's one Screaming Jay Hawkins cover of Tom Waits' Whistling Past the Graveyard. Um, I actually really dig this cover. I'm a Tom Waits fan, but I've always I've always liked this cover better than the Tom Waits version. Uh, Tom Waits, sometimes he can go full Tom Waits, and uh, sometimes he can go like... 75% Tom Waits and his version of this is like a 75% Tom Waits and it's still just a little too weird but I think I might also be biased because I heard this version first before I ever heard the Tom Waits one so eh, it's probably already lodged in my head but I'm thinking I had a great conversation with uh, Anthony in an email and I, I've heard this from a couple of people actually at this point about really enjoying the talking about the history of the books or the publishers or uh, the more of the stuff around it and then, you know, maybe kind of just getting a summary of the stories on the inside as opposed to, uh, you know, you're talking through, doing the radio play kind of thing um, that I've been doing. And I haven't decided at the moment of recording this if I'm going to do it or not, but I did record originally episode six. I recorded the, the usual way of doing, I did eerie number one. and. I, by the end, I kind of just realized I was sort of just, I, I had a good time doing it. I have fun, like, you know, acting like a dumbass, doing voices and stuff. I'm, my neighbor can probably hear me. Our walls are pretty thin in our house, uh, but our next door neighbor can probably hear all of this. And he's probably like, what the hell is going on up there? Um, but I don't care. I obviously don't care about that. But it, it, the editing started getting a little bit more tedious. It doesn't seem like it would, but I kind of have to change the music every time. Um, not necessarily the tracks, but it's, I don't really want to bore everybody with it, but the editing process got a little bit more tedious and that's my fault. Cause I, I do that with things that should be simple and I get, I think too hard on them. But, um, so I don't know if I'm going to have a ban. I'm not, I'm not going to abandon that, uh, just yet, but I'd kind of like to know what everybody thinks as far as format goes or do I have to stick to a one format thing? Because it's obviously easier, uh, to go through, it talk about the history and maybe less polarizing when, you know, if a guy wants to listen to podcasts, but he's like embarrassed when his wife comes in and he's listening to some guy like, whatever I'm and like, I, I don't know, but, uh, not that I don't like it. It's still fun, but it kind of just made me think and kind of go back and say, well, do I want it to be this every time? Is that going to get old? Because I've got two voices that I use, uh, and those two, some may say, are still not two. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, my other podcast that I do uh, is called DC Comics Squadcast, and we we walk through the stories. And if the dialogue is super important, we kind of read it, but we walk through the issues that come out every week and really lay out the story. Um, sometimes we'll summarize it really quick, uh, but it's usually only if nothing happens in that comic book. So 
which has been happening a lot lately, but we won't get into that. Um, So I was thinking about picking an issue like today. I have picked Creepy, number 110. And I'm kind of thinking about taking that approach. Uh, Let's looking into the history and I'm, I'm going to do that. And again, if you're hearing this, then of course I went with it. And, um, I, I just, to get back to what I was saying earlier, when I did the eerie one, I just kind of realized that when I was done, I was like, I don't know. I just wasn't really feeling it. It sounds really weird to say, cause it's just me acting like an idiot, but, um, it just felt, uh, I don't know. It didn't feel as like fun and like from the heart and genuine interest just cause I, and it wasn't really a very good issue. Um, it was an issue that they literally made, and I, 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 I might throw it up as a bonus episode, or maybe even just tag it on the end of this one, because why not? Uh, just unedited, and you know, so you can see what I mean. Because I do talk about the history of that and why they brought it about and all that stuff. So um, it might be of interest to some people, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But yeah, I just kind of felt uh, underwhelmed with my the episode whereas i had so much fun doing the other ones and this one was was different for some reason and it's taken me i keep i would sit down to edit it and kind of start messing with music and stuff and i'm just like i don't know i don't know i just I'd, I'd lose interest in that so i think i'm gonna scrap that as a main episode and i think i'm gonna go this route just switch it up a little bit and i, I please let me know what you think um, I, I, like I love getting these suggestions and talking to people on email or Twitter or whatever. Um, but I'd love to hear from you. So you can find me on Twitter at horror comics pod, and you can email me at horror comics podcast at gmail.com. And again, I mean, obviously it all goes to my phone and I get, you know, notifications immediately. So I'll, I'll try to respond as timely as possible. Um, so yeah, again, suggestions if you want both, if you would prefer. I'm sure there's some people out there that are like, oh, I like the radio thing. Uh, and some people that are like, I don't really like that part so much. Um, so I don't know. Let's talk about it. I, I'd love to have an open dialogue with listeners um, and kind of let you guys sort of decide in a way where the show goes. But uh, hopefully Screaming Jay Hawkins or Tom Waits people or whoever don't... Uh, don't come after me for using that intro. Uh, but, uh, I guess it's a risk I'm willing to take, and I don't. I don't say that because uh, because I assume they would be listening. I, it's more of like they have ways of scanning the internet for copyrighted content. Uh, there's ways around it, but you know, if they want to find it, they can find it. Um, usually, if it's the actual original file. So whatever. Um, we're just gonna go with it and um, cross that bridge. Uh, shall we ever reach it? And I'm actually going to go ahead and go over to the mail and read this email from Anthony. Hey, Chris, thank you for making a horror comics podcast. I think you're the only one and we've been long overdue for it. I've listened for the first to the first two episodes. He says he listens to the first uh, two, three and four. Uh, You always ask for some feedback on your show. So I decided to drop you a line. My favorite part of the podcast is when you dive into the history of the series you're covering. I have a minor amount of knowledge with older horror comics, and I love hearing about the history of those titles and creators. I'd love to see more of that. Uh, I have trouble hanging in there when you read the comics and then describe the panels. I know that's the majority of the podcast, though um, I would prefer a synopsis of the story and a review with your take on the story art, story and art. I'd really like to hear more from you and your take uh, than just reading a story. That's just me, though. 
that's not just you. I've I've had <laughs> not in such detail, but kind of that kind of deal about you know people seem to like the history, like I said. So um, emo goes on to say uh, stuff I'd like to see, stuff I'd love to see. Uh, maybe your thoughts on more modern horror comics today. Uh, maybe a comparison to others. Um, and you know I, I'm not really reading a lot of the modern horror comics. Uh, I don't know. To me, there I know there's some good ones out there. Um, I really like the chilling, gosh, the, the newer chilling adventures of Sabrina a book that came out a couple of years ago, I guess, that still isn't finished, but I'm guessing it's indefinitely delayed because uh, they stopped and then they put out the show and the story kind of just never finished. I think it was supposed to have a issue a seven, eight, I can't remember where it ended. It sort of just ended, and like the next issue just never came out. Uh, and that's been a couple of years now. So, anyway, but whatever, the first volume of that is really good. Um, but I've started it's Scott Snyder's um, Witches, and I've read a handful of issues of that, and I like that. So, I could use that. Um, but I'm not really into like, like Walking Dead, like, like zombies. Or even really vampires that much as far as like an ongoing series for like real horror. It's just not really, it doesn't really interest me as much. Uh, and not to say that there's not good horror comics out there that are coming out today. Um, I just, I don't know, for some reason it, it doesn't... It, Serena, the, the Serena book strikes a chord of nostalgia to me. When I opened it up, it reminds me of old comics. And I love that. And that's kind of why I think I attached to it. And um, Witches is actually, to me, just really well written. There's one called Redneck um, that kind of goes against... Well, I don't want to ruin it for you. It kind of goes against something I just said a minute ago. But it's also really good. Um, but the art in Witches and Redneck aren't necessarily reminiscent of old school comics like Sabrina is. But something still, it works for me. Um, and I think it's just good writing. Uh, so, yeah, again... It, I would love some suggestions on modern horror, um, but I, I find that I have a harder time reading it. Um, and it may be because I'm just used to reading horror comics in, in like an anthology form. So it's harder for me to stick to, I don't know uh, what it is, but probably a combination of things. So, so the next thing, uh, some stuff I'd love to see. Uh, what makes a good horror story to you? What a good monster design is? Should comic artists limit, limit what we see to make horror comics scarier? Uh, interviews with other horror creators, lists, episodes, best shorts, most disturbing shorts, uh, most controversial horror comics, underrated horror hosts, stuff like that. Uh, I run a, so next he says, I run a small horror blog where I interview other horror comic creators. I mostly focus on creating horror comics in it and the state of the genre today. The biggest question I focus on is why are there so few purely horror comics out there today? Most of the horror comics we have blend genders like fantasy, comedy, or superheroes. There aren't many horror comics that set out to scare the readers, and I'm not sure why that is. Uh, I hope some of this feedback is constructive for you, and thank you for making podcast content about my favorite genre in comics. Take care. Uh, that's Anthony, and he sent a link, so I'll, I'm gonna. If you want to find him on Twitter, it's um, at it looks like Ant like A N T underscore Cleveland, and he's got a website AnthonyCleveland.com. So go check him out. Um, I. I somehow missed the part about the blog when I read it the first time. Um, so I'll have to check that out. So thank you for e uh, emailing in. And I, um, and I, I, sorry if my audio keeps fluctuating or anything like that. I'm, I'm trying to make up the gain. 
so that it's picking up a strong signal, but it's not picking up the radio station across the street that sometimes comes through for whatever reason. Uh, I've got grounding and everything, but it still comes through the recording, uh, the airwaves or whatever, and you can hear every fucking person with a goddamn uh, muffler uh, that's the size of this city uh, coming down the street um, every 10 seconds. So I try to find a uh, uh, even spot where it's not so bad. Um, anyway, there's, there's a lot of good stuff in this email, a lot of good suggestions. Um, interviews with other horror creators. Now, I actually have, and I won't say who because I haven't gotten a response, I've actually inquired with a writer who's actually been a pretty high-profile writer for the past, well, I mean, it, it, to, for me since 2011 and still to this day. Um, and I, we'll see. Uh, he's very good about talking to uh, his readers and whatnot, and he's very nice, um, and he's very willing to do interviews, but I can imagine that he's swamped because he's got really big things happening, so I uh, don't hold it against him for not being able to uh, respond in a timely manner. It's totally fine. I'll try again. Uh, but that would be cool. I'd like to talk to horror writers and whatnot. So that'd be, that'd be great. Um, I guess I, but I'll, I need to, you know, probably start reading more modern horror comics. Uh, so we'll see. Um, but yeah, that, uh, I'm definitely into, uh, getting into some of that stuff. And as far as making like lists and stuff, I, I don't know why, but the moment someone's like, okay, what's your top five favorite movies? I'm just like, uh, you know, I have no idea. All right, well, what's your top five favorite albums or songs or artists? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I guess maybe I don't think in those terms as like an order. I just have a bunch of things that I really, really like or love. Um, so I, not that I wouldn't dabble with it. I'm just telling it ahead of time. I ain't the best at it. So, uh, but again, that's the, uh, let's see, actually, let's see if I had another email. I felt like I did. Nope, that was it. Uh, anyway, so, okay, cool. Well, we can get into Creepy now. And like I said, it is issue 110. This came out in August of 1979. It is published by Warren Publishing. And our writers here are Bill Kelly, uh, Jerry Boudreaux, Alex Southern, Carrie Bates, uh, Nicola Cutie, Archie Goodwin, Bob Toomey, Artists are Leopoldo Duranano, uh, Rudy Nebris, uh, Jose Ortiz, Rafael Ara Leon, Joe Valtz, and Jesus Blasco. And you know, one thing that one thing that I wish existed, and I can't unfortunately seem to find it for a lot of things. Like I wish, I don't know, I wish I could find a place where there's information about each individual issue. I mean, I know that's a lot of like, just kind of whatever, but I, I don't know. Um, like, I guess this came out at a time where people weren't necessarily reviewing horror comics or, or comics really probably that much, um, or obviously not as much as they do now. But as always, we can, I know I've talked about it in the last issue of Creepy, so if you don't want to hear about it, you can fast forward. But for those who didn't listen to it, um, I'm going to talk a little, about, a little bit about Warren Publishing. Now, it was founded by James Warren in 1957, uh, and it actually went defunct in 1983. So other titles published by uh, Warren Publishing uh, magazines were After Hours, uh, Eerie, Famous Monsters of Filmland, Help, and Vampirella. Uh, it was initially based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The company moved it by 1965 to New York City. 
know, famous fo- monsters of Filmland uh, and Monster World were actually kind of the initial, the jumping off point for uh, Warren Publishing. Um, and it went into Space Spacemen magazine. Um, and then in 1960, Help magazine, um, which oddly enough, the first, not oddly enough, but interestingly enough, the first employee of that, of Help, was uh, Gloria Steinem. Uh, after introducing what he called Monster Comics and Monster World, Warren expanded in 1964 with horror comic stories in the sister magazines Creepy and Eerie, black and white publications in a standard magazine format rather than comic book size and selling for 35 cents as opposed to the standard comic book price of 12 cents. Uh, This format uh, averted the restrictions of the Comics Code Authority, the comic book industry's self-censorship body. And this is a quote. uh, Well, I don't... This is a quote from uh, the Warren Companion. Uh, The Comics Code saved the industry from turmoil, but at the same time, it had a cleansing kind of effect on comics, making them clean, proper, and family-oriented, which would over- we would overcome this by saying to the comics, to the code authority, the industry, the printers, and the distributors, we're not a comic book or a magazine. Creepy is a magazine size, is my, eh, sorry, Ma- creepy is magazine size, God damn it, and will be sold on magazine racks, not comic book racks. Uh, Creepy's manifesto was brief and direct. First, it was to be a magazine format of 8.5 by 11, going to an older audience not subject to the code authority. By pub- this is, that's in quote. Uh, by publishing graphic stories in a magazine format to which the code did not apply, Warren paved the way for such later graphic story magazines as the American version of Heavy Metal, Marvel Comics, Epic Illustrated, and Psycho, and other series from Skywall Publications. Uh, Russ Jones was a founding editor of Creepy in 1964. Uh, a year later, Archie Goodwin succeeded him, with Joe Orlando acting as a behind-the-scenes story editor. Goodwin, who would become one of comics' foremost and most influential writers, helped to establish the company as a leader in its field form. Uh, from 1965 to 1966, Warren also published the four-issue Blazing Combat, Combat, a war comics magazine with anti-war themes, which was very controversial at the time. Now, we've talked about before how a lot of these horror comics, they were pushing more progressive ideas uh, that were not you didn't see it a lot uh, like anti-war uh, racial equality uh, gender equality um, you know all, they were things that people didn't want put in in their <laughs> in their magazines or comic books or anything or entertainment at all and a perfect example of that right here um, is uh, the story judgment day and I'll go into the what happened around it so uh, Gaines, I'm, I'm reading here from the, the kind of Wikipedia recount. Uh, Gaines waged a number of battles with the Comics Code Authority in an attempt to keep his magazines free from censorship. In one particular example noted by comics historian Digby Dial, Gaines threatened Judge Charles Murphy, the Comics Code Administrator, with a lawsuit when Murphy ordered EC to alter the science fiction story Judgment Day. Uh, in Incredible Science Fiction number 33, February 1956, uh, the story by writer Al Feldstein and artist Joe Orlando was a reprint from the pre-code Weird Fantasy number 18, April 1953, inserted when the Code Authority had rejected an initial original story, An Eye for an Eye, drawn by Angelo Torres, but was itself also objected to because of the central character being black. Jesus. The story depicted a human astronaut, a representative of the Galactic Republic, visiting the planet uh, Cybrenia inhabited by robots. He finds the robots divided into functionally identical orange and blue races. 
one of which has fewer rights and privileges than the other. Uh, ast- the astronaut determines that due to the robot's bigotry, the Galactic Republic should not admit the planet. In the final panel, he removes his helmet, revealing himself to be a black man. Murphy demanded, without any authority in the code, that the black astronaut had to be removed. As Dial recounted in Tales from the Crypt, the official archives, this really made him go bananas in the code czar's office. Uh, Judge Murphy was off his nut. He was really out to get us, recalls EC editor Al Feldstein. Uh, I went in there with this story, and Murphy says it can't be a black man. But, but that's the p- whole point of the story. Feldstein sputtered. Uh, when Murphy continued to insist that the black man had to go, Feldstein put it in, in on the line. Listen, he told Murphy, you've been writing us and making it impossible to put out anything at all because you guys just want us out of business. Feldstein reported the results of his audience with the czar. Feldstein reported the results of his audience with the czar to Gaines, who was furious and immediately picked up the phone and called Murphy. This is ridiculous, he bellowed. I'm going to call a press conference on this. You have no grounds, no basis to do this. I'll sue you. Murphy made what he surely thought was a gracious concession. All right, just take off the beads of sweat. At that, Gaines and Feldstein both went ballistic. Fuck you, they shouted into the telephone in unison. Murphy hung up on them, but the story ran in its original form. Feldstein interviewed the book, interviewed for the book Tales of Terror, the EC Companion, reiterate, reiterated his recollection of Murphy making the request. So he said it can't be a black person. So I said, for God's sakes, Judge Murphy, that's the whole point of the goddamn story. So he said, no, it can't be a black. A black. Jesus, the people. <sighs> Bill Gaines just called him up later and raised the roof. And finally they said, well, you got to take the perspiration off. I had the stars glistening in the perspiration on the black man's skin. Bill said, fuck you, and he hung up. Although that reprinted story did run uncensored, Incredible Science Fiction number 33 was the last EC comic book to be published. Gaines switched his focus to EC's picto-fiction titles, a line of typeset black-and-white magazines with heavily illustrated stories. Uh, Fiction was formatted to alternate illustrations with blocks of typeset text. Uh, Some of the contents were rewrites of stories previously published in EC's comic books, this experimental line lost money from the start and only lasted two issues per title. When EC's national distributor went bankrupt, Gaines dropped all of his titles except Mad. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that whole story is crazy to me. But, I, you know, it's awesome that they were like, no, we're, no, <laughs> we don't care what you think. We're running it anyway. Uh, but, yeah, that just kind of little perspective on the view of those types of things and again being anti-war was being was seen as you know being anti-patriotic and i think today that is still kind of a fine line for a lot of people um although you know i think things changed throughout history and as time went on but even so still it's kind of like if if you talk about being anti-war you could some people will confront you about like Oh, what? So you hate the military? Well, no. Um, anyway, it's, uh, yeah, it's very interesting, but that's just a little bit of history on, uh, horror comics. And that's, you know, that was EC obviously, but, uh, Warren publishing was, was brought on there as well, as far as pushing some, some different ideas that weren't so hot, but, um, yeah, now we can go ahead and get, we'll go ahead and get into the issue. We'll go into the stories and then we'll see what we've got here. So our first story is the snapper. It's written by Bill Kelly with art by Leo Duranona. And this story is about these privateers who are commissioned by the government um, to operate during war, but to take out British ships and 
basically loot them. They're, they're pirates that are run by the government pretty much. Um, and that's kind of what's happening here. We get them taken over a ship and they, as they're leaving, they're kind of taking a uh, refuge, uh, in this, uh, these kind of pine swamps. And, uh, it is captained by a, it, by a captain Pike. And other than captain Pike, it's kind of hard to tell who the different people are. Um, you have a Denny who is referred to, and then they refer to someone else later as Denny. And it's not the same person that was called Denny before, as far as I can tell. So I don't know if that's a title or someone's name. It's very confusing. But regardless, he's just got a crew of like young men, I guess, that they're training. And then he's got a guy that you keep seeing who I'm guessing is like his second in command who, well, I'll get to it. He, he's like, they're worried that they're going to run into some pineys. And pineys are these sort of inbred uh, mutant kind of looking um, ape-like humanoids uh, that are on this island. Well, Captain Pike's uh, secondhand man, I'm just going to keep calling him that because I don't know what he actually is. He kind of looks like one of them, except for he's not as hairy, but he's got like big old mutton chops and his face is kind of shaped the same way. Um, so they do get attacked by Pineys. They kill them all. His crew and his second-in-command are like, oh, God, we murdered them. This is terrible. Or actually, they accuse the captain of murdering them. They're like, hey, I can't believe you did that, except for they all shot at him. Uh, so, whatever. Following orders, maybe. But um, his second-in-command is kind of, like, freaking out, and he's like, now you've done it. Oh, no. Well, later, we're at a, pot, we're at a tavern uh, north of the Pine Marshes, and this they're having this conversation about... Um, somebody's telling Captain Pike that, you know, his, his privateering days are coming to an end. Um, well, the second in command comes up and he says, big Jonah come now. And it's very confusing because now it's okay. So I guess what it, it looks like the two people you're seeing outside the tavern and it looks like the two people walking away from the tavern because one of them looks like the second hand man in command. But it looks like they're talking, but he's referring to this other guy who's not Captain Pike as Pike. He's like a, a bigger um, guy with like a weird thing wrapped around his head. So I think what they're trying to portray is that the word bubbles are coming out of the window of the tavern. It just kind of looks like they're coming from the guy that looks just like Pike's second in command. Um, so, okay. He says, Big Jonah, come now. Is Pike warns him that there's two transports coming that are going to be off the Jersey coast, like two ships in one night. You know, we, it's, we can't, we have to get them. So the next night, um, they've had, they've taken the first British ship and they send out these younger guys to take the supplies, um, up the river. Well, these, while they're doing that, they start seeing this, you know, these, these fins and stuff coming out of the water they're freaking out. They jump out of the boat, and it's this giant turtle, a giant snapping turtle. And it actually eats the boat and most of the people in it, except for one who swam away to land. So now we've got Captain Pike, and they've got their own barge with supplies, and they're trying to get up there. Well, this guy that survived when they get to the island is like, we have to get out of here. We have to abandon this barge. we got to get out of here while we can. So, oddly enough, they're like, uh, he looks like he means business. Let's hide here on this island. Let's hide in the woods and let's just, let's watch because 
um, the British Navy patrol sees their abandoned barge that they left there. And as this British Navy patrol comes up, the snapper comes on them and, and eats them as well. Um, and this second in command to Captain Pike is like, you know, Big Jonah's been here forever. The Pineys fed him. Now they're dead. So Jonah's hungry. So I guess that's what he meant by now they done and gone. It. Now they gone and done it. Uh, because he's like, well, he's now he's going to feast. But um, so they're basically stuck here. Uh, but yeah, so they're basically stuck here on this island. And um, they're just doing what they can to survive because they don't want to go in the water. Well, they get the idea to bait them. So they're, he's telling them, you know, we're going to lure him out. And then we're going to um, just harpoon him right in the eye. We're going to take him out, take his brain out. So they do it. They go out in a little boat and they've got their harpoons. And so sure enough, here comes the snapper. They toss the harpoon into his eye, except it just makes him more angry and uh, starts like sloshing around the water. Well, they get back to the island and well, actually I take it back. The now again, I don't know if this is who this is because there's like most of the people in this book look like this guy, but the captain Pike second in command seems to be holding onto the harpoon and gets, it looks like chopped up with, it's hard to tell. I really don't know what's going on. Um, but you have him and he's screaming and you have a big chomp. So next, Captain Pike's idea is to turn to the militia and say, you know, we need your help. You know, we're, we're lost here and we've got to go take this thing out. Well, the head of militia is like, you know, we're, we can't do that. We're, we're not going to be able to survive that with our resources. Uh, also, there's a British warship uh, patrolling the coast. So they need, you know, all their protection here on the island. Well, so Pike is like, OK, well, now I know what to do. We're going to take this warship. They would not be expecting it because, again, they're a warship, not a supply ship. So they go and they take this ship. They take the, all their weapons, the gunpowder, the, all the cannon, everything. Um, and they load up this boat with a scarecrow of a person uh, on it. And so sure enough, here comes the snapper and they light the fuse from somewhere. I guess it, I don't know. Anyway, they light the fuse and it blows up in the snapper's mouth. Well, they're all celebrating now back at the tavern, and um, they're talking about how, you know, Pike's privateering days are over, um, and he's like, they're over anyway, you know, they're like, well, what do you mean, Big John is dead, and he's like, yeah, he is, but, you know, I saw, basically in the back of the swamp, he saw some eggs, some, some turtle eggs ready to hatch, and he says, it appears Big Jonah was a female turtle, and you know, the way I figure it, the Man of War Patrol that's bound to be looking for us should arrive just in time for breakfast. And so sure enough, you see all these little baby snappers, I say little, they're giant, but still smaller snappers taken down this warship. So as they're leaving the tavern, um, one of the younger, uh, I don't know what you call them, uh, under Captain Pike, they're walking away from the tavern. He's like uh, talking to, I don't know who he's, he's talking to one of the colonels and he just can't shake something that Captain Pike said about those eggs you know, about Big Jonah, he's like, you know, if, but then they both come to the conclusion at the end, it's the big climax. It's like, my God, if Big Jonah was a female and laid eggs, there's got to be a male. Now, Colonel, do you hear that roaring back there? Doesn't it sound like the happy shouts of uh, carousing privateers, does it? And sure enough, you see this gargantuan male snapping turtle uh, destroying the coastside there. And that's the end. So uh, that 
not very creepy. Uh, interesting because you know they start you off talking about the pineys, and you know they're attacking, but they quickly take them out, and you're like, okay, well, what now? Well, I guess they. I, I kind of got the impression, and this is just in my head, that they worshipped, you know, Big Jonah and I guess the male one too as some kind of gods, and they fed them. Uh, what they fed them, I don't know. I can only imagine other humans. I, I don't know, but uh, sacrificing uh, <laughs> others. But uh, it wasn't. I mean, it was a different twist than again. Like I said, first time reading, and I'm like, okay, the Pineys. This is our antagonist. Nope. Um, so it's interesting. It's just kind of funny. They all get taken out. There's, there's, you know, there's no hope here uh, for really for survival. I would assume, except for uh, these two, the colonel and this. He keeps calling him lad. So this lad and the colonel that are, you know, walking away. Uh, obviously, this is all happening behind them. Now I want to get back to real quick the cover because the cover is the reason I bought this issue, however long ago. And first of all, it's you know if you Google, I'll make the show art. So you're probably looking at it. Hopefully. Um, but it's a big a demon face with like both eyes are different colors. And it's on the top. It says hell begins on page 33, which is funny because my first thought was, why not just have it begin on the first story? Because <laughs> uh, that theme does come up. It gets there. Uh, but the first couple of stories are just random. So it's just funny. They couldn't throw together a, a themed issue. But anyway, it is what it is. I just thought it was funny. It's, it's very misleading because that too. With that in mind, you're opening this up uh, with these people in this worship, and you're expecting hell or something to somehow be um, involved. Uh, but I guess war is hell. But uh, no. Um, so, yeah, this, so you have this terrifying demon. So that's kind of what you're in it for. They're just, I guess they needed to throw, you know, these writer, this writer and artist, a couple of bones, uh, and let them have something there. So um, the art's great. Uh, it gets a little busy and it might just be lack of coloring um it gets a little busy in in some of these scenes with this snapping turtle and it's really just a couple of panels where it's kind of hard to tell what's going on um in the tussle of like the water and all the you know it's a turtle it's got all these stripes and all these lines and stuff and plus the boat's being torn apart so you also have people it's just it all kind of gets intertwined there and it's just kind of hard to tell what's really happening at first but once you kind of get the full picture it's uh it's really great it's great art um so it's it's an interesting little little primer story i guess warm up it's kind of like the opening act for a band you really want to see and you kind of have to sit through you know the openers uh, which I know what that's like on both sides of it. Uh, I spent most of my music career being that opener that no one really wanted to see. Uh, I'm kidding. I, we, we did just fine. Um, so we'll go ahead and move on to our next story in this issue. And it is titled Sunset Farms. Now, Sunset Farms is a... Basically, it's a moon that has been sort of computer designed. Uh, there's a bunch of sort of AI, like robots running the place. It's um, it's basically a prison for like old mob members. And I think it's like specifically one mob because they keep talking about corpse members. And I thought that they were just misspelling like the term core, like Green Lantern core or the Army Navy core. You know what I mean? Uh, where it looks like corpse but it's core. Uh, this is actually spelled like corpse, like a body, like a dead body. Um, 
And so I think that maybe it's designated for one gang. And they, they kind of disguise it as kind of a... Reti- I, don't, I don't really understand fully the premise as to why it's like, well, they're uh, they're being sent here when they're getting older, but it's basically a prison because they are being drugged. Um, and I, I don't know. It, it's That's not the only problem with this story, but we'll just go through it. So we start off, and there's a ship taking some folks there. And basically, you do have like a guide talking that's talking as if, like, thank you for choosing Sunset Farms as basically a retirement home. Um, so our main character here, whose name, yeah, I don't even know if we ever really get his name, but um, he's a must- mustached man, and he's got his muscle there, basically. Uh, I guess if you're in the mob, you you get to have that uh, with you on your uh, retirement. Uh, and so pretty much right away, Ratchet, the his his sort of hit, not hitman, his, his muscle basically, uh, starts kind of getting into the groove of what's going on on uh, Sunset Farms. And so you see right away that he's like, uh, you know, our, our our main character here is is wanting to basically find a way to make an escape. Um, uh, Ratchet has been taking the drugs. Our main character has been acting like he's taking the drugs and, drugs, and he's replacing them with a placebo that the robots can't detect the difference of. How he knew... Which one that would be, time will never tell. Um, but Ratchet, his muscle here, is already, he's, he's uh, in his little, uh, his bunk with a female getting kind of sexy. And so he's already noticing that he's kind of getting a little comfortable and falling into the order of things here at Sunset Farms. So as our main character is walking about um, the premise Premises, premises. Uh, he does come across a situation where a guy is yeah, screaming and yelling. He's got a gun to his head. He's talking about how you know they don't, they can't do anything on their own. They can't think anything on their own. They're completely controlled by these drugs that are in the food. They're in the air. Uh, you know, they're tranquilized into terminal boredom, and there's no escape except for death. And he blows his brains out in a sort of kind of graphic way. You see a little bit of. Stuff coming out. Again, it's black and white, so it's not bloody. So our main character realizes that he's not the only one that's suspicious of what's happening here. Um, and then kind of starts to realize, you know, so it's only going to be a matter of time before, you know, I, I, I'm where this guy was. I They know that I'm not playing along. I'm not hiding it anymore because they're going to start noticing my behavior and all these, all these different, the way that people are going to be as time goes on there. Um... Well, about this time, he sees a ship coming over, and he's obviously assuming that it's uh, something to do with the authority here at Sunset Farms. So he wants to go check it out because uh, he might be able to escape this way. Well, it's some kind of uh, alien ship. Uh, it, it, well, no, it's not a ship. It's an alien who brings this, uh, what is it called again? The uh, Communicube. And they plug it into the computer, and it has a message. And it bas- it says to set dials to certain degrees uh, to implement, um, it basically make the moon that they're on, Skyroids, the name of the moon, uh, to crash into the surface of the mother planet. Um, so basically, it's a it, they're destroying it. And um, 
So this is Charlie Scope getting this message, and he's the administrator. He's kind of the person sort of in, not in charge, I don't think, but he he's kind of the... Uh, bail. What do you call it? The warden, maybe. Uh, sort of. Um, so that after you, after they set this dial to do this, they're gonna have an hour before this happens for the, I guess, staff, everybody that's actually people that would need to escape. Um, this to escape. So, so our main character goes off to get Ratchet, and um. He's distracted. He's playing a bingo game, and he's like, "Hey, you know this is important. We need to get out of here." Well, one of the staff comes along. He's like, "Hey, chill, because uh, you need to either play the game or watch from outside the playing area. You know, do you, do you want to play?" And he's like, "No, no, thanks." Uh, it's trying to again calm down and, and blend in. So he's trying to figure out a, a, a plan here, uh, how to get Ratchet to snap out of it and kind of escape with him. Well, he gets it, and he thinks it's brilliant, and so. He goes back to this Sco- Charlie Scopes. Is it Charlie? Is that what I said? Yeah, Charlie Scope, his office, and he's just pounding booze. He's just getting hammered. Um, and at this point, a half hour has passed, and he's slurring his speech. Yeah, or, uh, yeah, he's not thinking to himself. He's, yeah, he's speaking out loud. Uh, he's just kind of, uh, he's basically trying to get make his own getaway without anybody else. He's like, hey, I'm coming in for an inspection. It was a personal inspection. Everybody leave the car. He's like drunk. He's slurring his speech. It's kind of funny to read. Um, and, well, he's talking to these droids. And it's like, that's the whole point. Is like the droids never question their orders. So they get out. So he's going to go. He's going to make an escape. Well, our, so our main character is going to follow. Well, uh, this <laughs> is our, our, our main character goes and he gets the communicube that Charlie drunkenly had left sitting out. And this is where it gets funny because he says, by the time he gets the communicube, he says, the way I figured it, uh, Charlie would be about halfway to the hangar when I played the cube's message over the loudspeaker, which he does. Not all the inmates understood basic English, but of course, those who did would be the only ones, would be only too eager to translate. Uh, I'd loop the tape so the announcement would blare over and over again, but had carefully deleted the portion. Had carefully deleted the portion that mentioned the escape ship. So this is uh, it's so funny. It's just like it, it, if someone if this was written now, I'd be like, wow, this guy is awful. But it's like you look at the time and the date and the aging, and you're like, I, I can't. They needed a story. I, what can you can you blame them? They just needed a way out to get. They need to get from point A to point B, uh, because it's just funny. It's like okay, so this guy he knows how to work the communicube that came from a ship that he's never seen before. He knew how to tie it into the speakers and put it on repeat. Not only that, he knew how to edit the audio down to get rid of certain portions, put it back together, then play it and put it on repeat. So it's just it's hilarious. It's like. Uh, skipping a lot of steps there it's just really funny to think about knowing if you've ever dealt with editing audio in the modern age or within the last 15 20 years it's still pretty funny but because we're talking about tape here he's he's having to pull the tape out cut it and reattach it or like but i because he calls it a tape at some point but he's also connecting the communicube to it I, I don't know it's just a little it's just bonkers so um eventually gets around to all of the inmates and they see Charlie Scope trying to escape. So they go after him and they're like, kill him, get him. Well, Charlie Scope kind of in to misdirect them instead of following them to escape, him following him to the escape uh, pod. 
or ship, he kind of goes the opposite direction, which apparently is what our main character wanted him to do. So uh, he finally gets Ratchet. He snaps out of it. He gets him. They're like, let's get the fuck out of here. Well, they run up to the escape pod and... And eventually, the, all the inmates find Charlie's scope, and they literally are just beating him to death in a mob. <laughs> and it's like, Jesus, okay. Um, so the ship takes off, and our main character, Boss, as, as Ratchet keeps just calling him Boss, he's like, yeah, if it wasn't for you, I would have been just like them. There wouldn't have been anything left of me but cinders. Well, Boss realizes that um, Corpse was knew what Charlie Scope was up to, and they disguised an air tank as a bomb. And so he's telling Ratchet, you know, you better go defuse that bomb disguised as an air tank. I spotted it as we came to the airlock. So, you know, Boss is like, unfortunately for them, Corpse now has an enemy who knows the organization, and I'm no Charlie Scope. It's going to be an interesting retirement end. So I don't know if they were thinking this was going to, like, launch potentially... It, fuck, maybe it did. I don't know. <laughs> like, uh, I haven't read the, the issue uh, 111. Maybe this is a continuing ongoing thing of the adventures of Boss and Ratchet. Um, but uh, I mean, it's just funny because it just say it does say end. It doesn't say to be continued or anything. Uh, it's an odd story. Uh, it's usually I don't know. It's just funny the ending. It's not like and then they blew up and in the end everyone died. Um, and all these people were trapped on the planet. It's before it crashes, and they, again, yes, everyone dies. Uh, it it kind of leaves this door open for, you know, defuse the bomb. Like he would know how to do that. Uh, again, I guess if he can do what we were talking about with the editing of the message from the Cosmic Cube, surely Ratchet can defuse a bomb disguised as an air tank. So. Uh, it's a funny story. I, I mean, I was interested kind of going through it. It was like, I'm not really into the sci-fi thing. I want to pick up an issue of creepy. I don't necessarily want, um, you know, Shawshank Redemption in space, but, uh, it's a funny story. I had a, I had a good time with it. It's just, it's, you know, not in this, probably the thrilling sense that the writers or the artists, uh, actually the art's fantastic. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, but you know, the writer creators probably didn't have, funny in mind but that's kind of what it turned out to be for me um so now speaking of you know not being creepy we're actually going to move on to it's not the page 33 hell that they were referring to on the cover but we are moving into the creepy side of things and that's where it gets fun take your child please written by uh, carrie bates art by jose ortiz so we're at an orphanage, and we've got a couple, uh, Robert and Olivia Barker, and they're adopting a child who uh, Mrs. Ratchet, the, I guess, head of the orphanage, is describing as you know, most most parents pass, people that are trying to adopt or foster, they, they, they don't, they're not really interested because um, this child is, uh, well, they're very different, but of course, Olivia is like, well, we think Special is the appropriate word to describe him. So, uh, and, and him being this special and unique child uh, is, you know, the reason they actually want to take him in. And we see on the playground that he is on one side of a seesaw, uh, as we call it here, and there's two children on the other side, and he's very easily weighing them down. Now, this child, Dwayne, is... Um, 
basically looks like a typical baby with like kind of a pot belly and really round head, but probably like 10, 11 years old. Oh, also worth mentioning, he's got a fin on his head, which kind of looks like it would be like, oh, it's just a little hair curl. No, it's not hair. It's part of his skin. And it's a it's like a shark fin, but it's it's you know, it's gross. It's weird. Um, so the family takes the kid home. They're going to church. Um, and uh, he, he actually he, he writes he's writing a letter to Mrs. Ratchet throughout some of this. And I'm going to read the letter, uh, but basically, yeah, I'll read the letter first, actually. So it's like, uh, Dear Mrs. Ratchet, um, which for some reason, so I live in Shreveport, Louisiana, and for some reason it's called Ratchet City, and I don't, I can't figure out why. People talked about how it was a song, it's in a rap song or something from a rapper from here that got big, and the only source I've heard that was like pointed toward, it actually just says Rack City, so... I don't know if any of you are in tune with that, um, you know, with rap music from 10 years ago, but that's still a thing happening here in Shreveport, and I just don't really get it. So here's Mrs. Ratchet, or a letter to her, rather, uh, from Dwayne. Dear Mrs. Ratchet, my home is a a town called Buxton. Uh, It has lots of stores and places to spend money. Every Saturday, mother and father take me into town with them and let me spend two whole dimes for true. Two! We live in a very nice house. I have my own room upstairs. I even have a dog. His name is Spud. I have a good suit now, too. Every Sunday, the three of us dress up real fine and go to church. Last last Sunday after church, we came home. Mother wore this big floppy hat. I thought it looked kind of silly on her. Now, um, Olivia tells Dwayne to, hey, before you do your chores, go change your clothes. And he goes and plays with the dog. So Robert, the father, um, he gets upset and he's like, hey. You better go change your clothes or I'm going to get the switch to you, which seems, I mean, I don't know how things went back in these days, but that seems like a really uh, harsh first measure. Um, but that's the way they do things here. So the letter goes on. You'd like Spud. He's real playful and affectionate. Mother and father were a little upset because I let him eat the cat, but they got over it soon enough. So we see an argument between Robert and Olivia where Robert's saying, hey, this kid's gone too far. He needs to be taught a lesson. Olivia's mad because she's like, you said you wouldn't lay a hand on him. And he's like, no, it's for his own good. He's, he's got to learn not to talk back. Uh, he's got to learn. So uh, Robert is dragging Dwayne by his head fin outside with the switch. So the letter goes on. All in all, the Barkers are pretty nice to me most of the time. There was this one time, I guess you could say, father lost his temper. So you have Olivia as she's sitting inside washing some dishes and she hears this switching going on outside. This, I guess, spanking as one some would call it. Um, and she just you hear the thip thap and the kind of groaning of the, you know, the painful cries of the switching. And she's like trying not to listen. She's like, oh, God, because you finally hear this. Please stop. Please like this begging to stop. And so the letter goes on. He was mad, real mad. I didn't know he... I mean, I know he didn't mean to hurt me, Mrs. Ratchet. So then you have Olivia's going outside. She, and the letter says, but you know how grown-ups get sometimes. And uh, Dwayne is actually beating Robert, the father, with the switch. And he is, his clothes are torn to shreds. He's a bloody mess. And he's just begging him to stop hitting him. So the letter goes on. But it turned out he never hit me after all. 
So I just left him behind the house and went to play with Spud. And uh, at this point, Olivia is holding Rob. It's just, just freaking, this kid is terrifying. Um, so we actually, then we switched to uh, Olivia is writing a letter. A letter uh, and it's, uh, dear mother, I'm afraid matters have gotten worse since my last letter. At first, Robert and I just thought the child was given the occasional tan- given to occasional tantrums, uh, but yesterday changed all that. You see Spud being thrown through the window, and in the next panel, the house is a complete everything's destroyed. The furniture, uh, Dwayne's holding a freaking looks look a broken off leg of a table, and he's just like saying, "Sorry, I didn't mean to do this. Didn't make a mess, but Spud made me mad, and you know he shouldn't have bit me." Uh, so basically what they're saying is like they end up laying out in this letter that like they don't really know how to go about this without people thinking they're insane and being locked away. They don't know who to talk to because the town is starting to notice that the parents are covered in bandages and bruises and cuts and whatnot. Uh, and like who's going to believe them if they're like, well, the kid did it. Well, here's the thing. The kid has a fucking fin on his head. I think everyone would probably be like, yeah, it's the fin kid. Whatever. Who knows? Whatever. That doesn't serve the story, I know, but I'm just like, so ob- don't make him so obviously terrifying. So she lays out in this letter to her mother that Robert was suggesting things um, to get rid of the child, um, that she wasn't on board with at first, but then he kind of convinced her because they didn't really know what else to do. Like, who can they go to? Where can they? They can't just, you know, what are they going to do? So they're going to basically cover a cloth in ether, knock the kid out while he's sleeping, and they put him in the back of the car, and they're going to go for a ride. So this is where Olivia's letter ends, and Dwayne's letter to Mrs. Ratchet picks back up as they're putting him in the car and driving away. So he says, Dear Mrs. Ratchet, the other day mother and father took me out for a drive. I was kind of surprised because the sun hadn't even come up yet. But father really seemed to enjoy his driving, and Mom always liked to look at the passing scenery. After a while, the scenery started to look unfamiliar to me. My sense of direction never was real good. So they're trying to figure out where to leave him. They're like, we're going to take him up to the mountains. We're going to leave him there. They also lay out that uh, Robert gave Dwayne enough ether to knock out a horse for a day. And they're only 45 minutes away from where Robert wants to drop him. Of course, Olivia's like, let's just pull over at this next cliff and do it. Um, So the letter goes on. Pretty soon we were up in the mountains. Uh, By now the sun was high in the sky. It was a beautiful day for a drive. But sometimes even beautiful days can start going bad before you know it. All it takes is for one little thing to go wrong. So Dwayne pops up from the back seat and he grabs Olivia over her mouth. Robert screams, Olivia. Dwayne grabs Robert by the hair and kind of jerks his head back. And in the letter it says, I guess father just took his eyes off the road a second too long. So he's talking now in the car. He's talking to his parents. He's like, before you try to put me to sleep, <laughs> you should have asked me how long I can hold my breath. Um, so now we see that the car flying off the side of the mountain. It hits the ground and it explodes in a big kaboom. Flames, whatnot. You see Dwayne's hand uh, coming out. He survived this crash. And he he explains this uh losing control of the car and crashing and how unlucky his mother and father were in this letter to Mrs. Ratchet. He's like, you know, they weren't as fortunate as I am, but it looks like I'm without a mother and a father again. So in the letter, he talks about how, you know, he's going to see what it's like to be on his own for a while. All right, everybody take care. Goodbye, Mrs. Ratchet. Love Dwayne and tell all the other children. Hello for me. And then it, you realize this Mrs. Ratchet is reading this letter. She says, 
I'm afraid that's whether, you know, that's the end of his letter. Mr. and Mrs. Uh, what did you say? You say your name was? Zomorge. We are the Zomorges. And the Zomorges thank Mrs. Ratchet for uh, helping them uh, in their search for their son, who was kidnapped and abandoned here. And she's like, uh, yeah, well, you know, Mr. Zomorge, yeah, hope you find your son. I agree. There can be no mistake for, as you pointed out, the family resemblance is quite remarkable. And then you see the Zomorges and the dad looks like a grown-up adult version of Dwayne with the fin on his head. And the mom looks pretty much the same, except for she doesn't have the fin. She's got like a kind of a helmety looking hair placement thing um, as they walk away. So I guess aliens is the answer to this one. So I like this one because it's kind of ambiguous as you assume aliens, like I said, but it's kind of ambiguous as to what's really going on with this kid. It's just funny that he's just like going from family to family. Well, actually not even really going from family to family. He, we only know of this one family, but it's just, it, he's just wreaking havoc and murdered them. Like, like in maybe it's a survival instinct for whatever species he is, but like purposefully killed them all, like losing control of the car, like whatever. Um, it's very sinister. And now he's out prowling. Uh, and, uh, I don't know. It's just kind of funny. You know, like, I don't know. I liked it. The kid is creepy looking and, um, the parents, not so much just cause they're adults, I mean, they're adults, but like the little kid and he's like wearing a Sunday best, with a little button up with the shorts and whatever. Uh, yet he's like having the dog eat the cat and throwing the dog through the window and beating the dad. I don't know. So it's a creepy little kid, kid tale. Um, and the art is, again, it's great. It's, it's fantastic. Uh, I absolutely love it. So this is, it's again, it's getting better. And uh, the stories are getting better as this goes on. It's like, again, it's like the opening band thing. Anyway, um, so now we're finally at page 33, the advertised page on the cover, which is supposedly where hell begins. So... Let's get into that, because it is the demon hater. And what I love about this is that it starts with a warning. And, okay, here comes again. The radio station across the street has started to fade into my earphones. Now, my headphones, and trying to figure out what song it is. I don't know if it's even going to come across in the recording. It's just funny, because I can hear it. Really throws me off sometimes, but sometimes it's cool to jam. Earlier they were playing Smashing Pumpkins, and I was like, okay, cool. Now it sounds like, oh, well, it's gone. Okay. Anyway, so this story, back to it, starts with uh, a warning. And it says, although the names of the demons, Magic Im- sorry, magic Implements, I think they mean Implements, because they're calling it Implements later in this story. Anyway, Magic Implements and Ceremonies used in this story have been altered. They are similar to the actual ones. Based upon strong advice, the author has used pseudonyms. He now advises the reader not to search for the correct titles, lest one inadvertently unleashes terrible forces which often prove to be unmanageable and difficult to remove. Oh, Lord. So, warning, all you listeners, uh, don't Google these, because I definitely didn't do that. You know, actually, I have a I have a spooky story, and 
I'll save it for after this issue. I, I, and it's something I forgot that I wanted to do. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, hometown scary stories or your scary stories or whatever. Uh, sorry, looking for a pen to remind myself to tell this spooky story. You want to talk about demons? Uh, well, I, demons, quote unquote. This is about a Dr. Robert Bell who is called to the scene of an explosion at a coal mine. Uh, the foreman called him there. You see them, they're dragging out bodies. And he's like, I, you know, I think this might be the wrong, I might be the wrong kind of doctor for what we're dealing with here. And the foreman's like, no, 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 no. There's a reason you're here. Well, um, they show him the body of this, well, it's a demon. It's your, it, basically the, the image of the demon with the, uh, hooved legs like the goat legs or whatever but with the human torso and arms but this one has a horse head um and so he's like okay yeah i recognize that that's that's uh bergamin bergamin probably it's not it's probably not bergamin it's probably bergamin yeah um demon of the mines a creature of poisonous breath um a direct inferior of balzacron captain of the guards at the gates of hell and so basically he takes him off and he's going to investigate the body and the miners are like, okay, we're all agreeing. We're not going to talk about this anymore. Uh, yeah, I'm calling bullshit, but you know, that's how folklore starts and that's what's fun about it. So um, we get back to Bale's house, uh, which is a very dark three story, perfect for this kind of story, uh, house on a large lot and he's calling his um Someone that he knows, a Dr. John Stevens, who's part of the occult studies department, um, basically like he's got a deep telling him he's got a demon and he needs him to be there. Um, and for whatever reason, he won't. So he sends this student and Bale is is just like, I, I don't get it. Like what? Why? Like, why would you send a student when this is like the real deal? He's got this body here. So he turns around, he notices that the chamber door is open. And he turns around, he sees Ashmodesis. 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 Whatever. Ashmodesis. Uh, king of demons. And it is a two-headed demon. One head has horns, the other one has a crown. And there's a little lumpy little demon guy there. Uh, they recognize that he's not an ordinary mortal because he recognizes him on sight. And they also introduce these Ashmodesis introduces uh, Belphagon, uh, the temptress and betrayer, and she is just a naked woman. I mean, I mean, it, children who were probably sneaking this back in the day were probably just like so excited. Uh, male children, I guess, or children that were <laughs> attracted to females. Uh, I don't want to get to whatever, um, because she's straight up just naked here. And she's like, yeah, let's take the bergamon and leave. Now, this room's too full of depressing spirits. So, Dr. Bale pulls out the dagger of Solomon, holds it up, and of course is like, you know, yeah, really, you're leaving so soon. And they freak out because they're like, how dare you expose us to that obscene device? Uh, the, our legions, which are over 7 million, are going to come destroy your house by nightfall. We're basically just going to burn it down. And he's taunting them. He's like, okay, so, yeah, threats from a creature who's afraid of a dagger but his internal thoughts are like yeah i'm i wish i was more as i wish i was as confident as i sound and he's kind of thinking that he's going to be overpowered by them 
So we have this student arriving at Dr. Bell's house, and you see he's got signs with these different symbols and whatnot. So when she kind of comes to the door and opens the door, she's trying to tell him that, like, hey, it's, you know, Dr. Stevens sent me, and he splashes her with water. And she's like, what the hell? And he's like, sorry, it's holy water. Make sure you're not a demon. Um, and she's like, well, you know, glad he didn't think I was a vampire. Otherwise, I'd have a stake in my heart right now. Um, but he's kind of just saying let me just show you what I've got downstairs because you might understand why I'm acting this way. So they go downstairs and he's already started dissecting this body and she's kind of like Jesus. Um, so she's taking notes and he's pulling out organs. He's like, I can't tell if it's a heart or a kidney. There's not in the right position for either one, but just say it's a kidney. So she's like, can you please go faster? I'm hearing noises outside. You know, I think this invasion is starting to happen. We might need to get out of here. He's like, nope, it's too late. It was an, it was too late an hour ago. Uh, we have signs on the gate. Should keep some of them out. Uh, she's got spells. He's got spells and implements to, you know, combat the stronger ones. Now let's get going. And she's like questioning how he can be so calm. She says, you know, if I didn't know better, I'd think you were one of them. He's like, well, I am. My father is a demon called Beal. And she, it's funny, she's like, what are you talking about? If this is a joke, I wish you'd tell me. I want to laugh also. So he explains, Ashmodeus said he was no ordinary mortal. He knew, you know, that all of them know the night his mother was seduced by an incubus, a demon in the shape of her lover. Um, so when he was born, Beale took him and was like, well, we've got no use for a half demon in hell. Uh, so he swapped him out for a human, which would be more favorable in hell. So he did. He exchanged Bale out for this other child. Um, and uh, that that's basically the origin, I guess. And I don't know how he knows that, but whatever. Uh, but he's explaining that these demons live in the ground, uh, like under in the bowels of the earth, he says, but uh, they can't really reach them until this mine explosion. And they, when they were doing that, they must have hit a pocket. And that explains the... Uh, Bergaman, Bergamon's <laughs> corpse uh, and why Ashmodeus wants it back and they want to kind of scrub all knowledge of any of this happening from existence, uh, including Dr. Bell, which I'm thinking also includes those miners. So he's kind of warning Bella, this student, um, that, look, this is a serious deal. This is not your fight. You can get out of here. We don't know each other. We don't have, you don't have any stake in this. Like, you can leave. And she's like, no, it, it's my fight. Like, I'm staying with you. So you start hearing the banging on the wall and the scratching on the wall. And Dr. Bale is like, okay, uh, apparently my signs aren't working. So she's like, is there anything we can do to, to fight back, you know? So he's like, he, he grabs like a, one of the, log, the logs on fire from his fireplace. Uh, it basically like looks like a torch. And he's like, look, I'm going to hold him off go to my lab and get my as many of my books and spells and implements as you can find and carry. So she takes off and you have this banging in the door and he's like basically like a badass kind of walks up to the door like, it's been a long time coming. Bring it on, motherfuckers. And so they crop, kick the door down and there's a bunch of demons and they just keep coming. But um, they're not necessarily attacking. They're kind of scared. Which I don't, they're scared of the fire. Um but he is kind of, a, he's attacking them and they keep coming in and they finally do get to a point where they're kind of taking him down. Uh, he loses his torch and he's like, wonder where Bella is. Like, did they get her? 
Uh, so he tries to go for another ember in the fireplace. When he looks in the fireplace, his books and all of his spells and stuff are in the fireplace. So the only thing he can think to do is take, he takes them out and he throws them at the demons. Well, that's enough to work. These books with all these spells hit the demons and it burns their flesh. Then they, they disappear back to hell. Well, he kind of jumps out the window, it seems like, and his hands are on fire. And uh, this Bella comes back and she's like... Yeah, we're gonna get, we're gonna get out of here. He's still worried about the demons waiting outside. Uh, she's like, no, they're gone. You know, they th- they thought they killed you. Um, so he makes a statement. He's like, you know, for a second there, I thought you were the demon Belphagon that you'd betrayed me. And at this point, his house is completely burning down. The flames have caught on everything on fire. And she's like, you know, I did I did betray you. I removed the runic symbols from the gates and tossed your books to the fireplace. He realizes Ashmodeus had kept his vow. So she says, you know, it was all part of my bargain with Asmodeus. Uh, he offered me my freedom from the netherworld if I would deliver you to him. And I kept most of my pact, but I couldn't allow you to die in that fire. I just couldn't. He's like, but why? You know, you're not a demon. The holy water would have burned your flesh if you were. And she says, haven't you guessed by now who I am? Can you be so wise and so blind at the same time? I'm the changeling. I'm the babe who was taken to hell in your place. And yeah, that's it. So, man, uh, <laughs> that was uh, uh, a nice little twist there. And I, I, I don't know. It's probably one of those obvious things to everybody. Um, when I was reading through it the very, the very first time, I actually, I know, I remember, I didn't catch the switcheroo. For some reason, I just I skimmed right past that. Didn't make anything of it. Him swapping out the babies, and so when she came along, I'm thinking she is going to be a vampire or something like. There's gonna be something like that where she is part of this demonic uh, league. They kind of lead you to think that too, with throwing all that stuff in the fire. Which I'm, I'm like, did she? I guess didn't quite do that. She maybe she did that, and then it was saving him. Like she said, like she didn't do the whole thing, um, but. She just couldn't bring herself to whatever. So um, I guess their story lives on in our imaginations. Maybe they built a new house and a life together. Uh, who knows? But I'll tell you what, uh, again, I keep saying it, but the art is fantastic in this. And Dr. Bale looks exactly like Ian McShane's character, Al Swearingen from Deadwood. Uh, well, whatever, Deadwood, whatever, any, any role in which Al Swearingen has a mustache, um, he looks just like him here. I'm like, it's crazy. I could totally see this being like a Tales from the Crypt or an anthology story or something starring him. Um, but it's great. The art's fantastic. And one thing I do love, I, I, and I don't know if it's based on, um, I don't know, old books or old whatever. You can find old artwork of like demons and stuff from different whatever texts and stuff but um the design for the demons and whatnot are really they're great i mean they're demons they look right but it's just the art's fantastic for them Uh, others again interesting interesting uh choices so um ashmodasis has two heads but only one wears the crown so it kind of leads you to believe like what's the separation there also who is this lumpy little demon that came with him they don't introduce the the lumpy demon, you only meet Belphagon, the naked woman, who actually kind of looks like Poison Ivy from uh, Batman, 
I, it's got, she looks like she's got, I guess it's probably supposed to be like a belt of jewels and stuff hanging down. She's got like a necklace coming down. It's uh, falling between her uh, breasts, if you will. Uh, I guess that's what the effect is supposed to be, but she's kind of in the background. It's kind of a pointless character. She's just there and you never see her again. Um, yeah, kind of like the little lumpy guy. I wasn't really sure what the purpose of those two. I guess just to say they they uh, came with their crew to wreck shop. Um, but yeah, no, I actually, I, I, I liked the story and maybe it's in comparison to the ones that came before it actually is dealing with the theme of hell and whatnot. Um, but it was a, a fun little journey into, uh, going from a mining explosion to their house burning down and dealing with, you know, demons and, uh, hell babies and human babies that were raised in hell. Uh, be curious to know how she made her escape, but, I guess, well, well, actually, never mind. It told us that she was sent to do this, uh, but she didn't go through with it. So, okay, there we go. Answer my own question. So, uh, but yeah, so I, I actually really like that one. So the next story is, uh, I realized too, before I move on, I came back to my computer just now, and apparently last night I did some uh, intoxicated podcasting. Uh, I've removed it. Uh, it's something that it, it wasn't that bad. It was just, you know, I'm self-conscious, but it is something that I wanted to talk about. Uh, it just, it, not right in the middle of the episode. Uh, so I don't know what I was thinking, but, um, I am going to put it on the end so that it's coming, but uh, just a little anecdote. Um, I thought about leaving it cause you know, maybe some people would find it funny. It, it's not a funny thing that happened. It's just like, I don't know. Some maybe you wouldn't be able to tell I was drunk. Who knows? Anyway, uh, we're gonna get back to it. So th- this story is uh, horror is a high rise, and it is written by Archie Goodwin and art by Leo Duranana. So we get an opening dialogue talking about the skyline of this large city, skyline of this large city, and you know, how the seem appear impersonal and cold like giant building blocks or perhaps like gravestones and we get a big splash page of a woman and a bunch of glass and blood falling from very high from this high rise and now we've got the i'm guessing the owner and sort of the um i guess the person that he's she was i guess manager and she lived in a really nice suite in this high-rise, uh, it's apartment complex, it seems like. So uh, she lived there, and so the owner's replacing her with this guy, and they're, they're realizing that she did, in fact, commit suicide. So, um, or, or dived out herself, rather. So um, she apparently threw a chair through it first, a very large chair, uh, anyway, then jumped out. So this uh, Mr. Fairfax is the owner He's being pretty insensitive about the death and all that, about how it's making him look bad. And he's got millions riding on the success of the building. He's going to have to sort of shut it down and reopen it under a different you know, name, that have a new you know, grand opening kind of deal. Um, and he puts it on this, uh, let's see if I can, what is his name? Siano uh, is his name. Apparently he's got a bit of a drinking problem. So he lets him live there basically for public perception to say, oh, yeah, well, he lives here and we're having some grander openings. See, it's a safe place to live. It's, it's great. And this is a huge sky rise. Um, so the first night that Siano is staying here, he, he's woken up in the middle of the night by this, this ee- like kind of waving sound. 
And uh, it's like, it sounds like somebody's screaming. So obviously it was more of a scream. Uh, I got that wrong. But uh, anyway, it's more of a scream. Uh, and he kind of, it's, he's laying out that it sounds like it's right in the room with him. Uh, he can't get the lights to turn on. So he goes into the bathroom and one of the, one of the bathroom tiles by the bathtub has like popped off and there's blood shooting out of it. So he reports it to the janitor or the building handyman who basically tells him hey, it's, it's not blood. It's going to be probably just rust in the water from the pipes. Uh, but you're gonna have to get a plumber to look at it anyway. So, um, he's asking about the lights. So he checks the lights. He's like, well, the lights are fine. Um, so he calls somebody named Stu and he's looking for back any, any background information on this building that he can possibly find good, bad, doesn't matter. He just needs all the information. Um, and in exchange for this information, he's going to make sure he's invited to the big gala event and, as he's hanging up the phone, this screaming starts again and blood starts coming out of uh, both. It's, you know, the old school phone, both ends of the phone and coming out of like the heating vent. So him and the maintenance man go downstairs and he's like, I've just never heard, you know, any kind of stories like you're telling the kind of mix ups or whatever. He's like, well, look, can you just please check I, I, just for my sanity. So he's like, all right. So he goes in there. He goes to the master uh, lead box to try to trace the line and see if there's something in there. Well, at this point you hear the screaming and blood just starts blasting on both of them out of this box, which is that they call the ambulance. The maintenance man's hysterical. So he's telling him, look, we don't need publicity in this building. Like we need an exorcist. There's something ter terrible going on here. Um, and he has found out now that the, the woman at the beginning was not the first suicide. Um, one of the guys, one of the ambulance, one of the EMTs that picked up the maintenance man recalled having picked up a, uh, a suicide there before when it was uh, actually when it was being built. So, um, and the actually the architect ended up falling down the center of the main support column as well. So you just have death, death surrounding this place. Um, so you have Mr. Fairfax saying that Carl Duncan Ryder, who is the architect, He's a genius, but he was insane. He was senile. He tried to have the construction stop because Mr. Fairfax was tampering with some of his designs. And then when his case was thrown out of court, uh, he re retaliated the only way he could. You know, it's like, I'm not going to let this death ruin this great investment. So tomorrow night's reopening was going to be scheduled with the guest list you used, uh, your old connections to arrange. You know, we're going to have, we're going to, this is going to be a huge success. We're going to do, do it big. So, um, so later, and they did spell out earlier that he's got a drinking problem. He quit drinking and smoking at the same time. Well, he comes in drunk one night, uh, kind of hoping that will keep him from waking up with these, you know, all this horror. Um, and then all of a sudden, all the power in the building goes out, and the screaming starts again. And then coming from, uh, coming from the lights above them in the in the when you first walk in the building, uh, it comes blood just raining down. And the screaming starts again. And so he's looking for the emergency power. Well, he goes for the emergency power. There's blood coming out of there too. And then the elevator doors open up and there's just this big, like ghostly, uh, it's like black with like white shadowed face, a uh, face screaming. And it's just sending this wave, kind of like the shining sort of, uh, this wave of blood just rushing at Ciano. Well, of course, Fairfax blames it later on him being drunk and hallucinating most of it, which I, you see that a lot in TV and comics and, and books and stuff about like, oh, you just you're, you were seeing things. You were drunk. You hallucinated. Look, I've had my days or my nights rather where I've just been 
obliterated before. And I've never hallucinated. Is that a thing that people do? If you've ever hallucinated from drinking, uh, please uh, write me an email and let me know what that was like, because I'd love to know. Horrorcomicspodcast.gmail.com So, Fairfax is just pissed because they're going to have to have people working overtime now to get the place ready for the big gala that night, the grand opening. So, we get to the grand opening. Everybody's having a great time. There's a live band, very loud. They're stomping, and uh, you can feel the vibrations of all the music and everything just throughout the room. And Siano is screaming hysterically for everybody to get out. Everybody needs to leave. The party's over. Fairfax is pissed, of course. Um, he threatens him because he's got bodyguards all around. So Siano tells Fairfax that about his buddy digging up all this information about all the deals that he made when he's constructing this place. And uh, so the, the, the architect actually, he committed, he did commit suicide, but it wasn't because Fairfax was changing his designs. He actually undercut all of his specifications for building materials. He just constructed the, the, the building on bribes instead of what was legal. Um, and so, you know, therefore it's, it's very unsafe, safe. It's not up to code. Um, and he's like, I, you know, I finally understand what Ryder's ghost or spirit or whatever it has, whatever it is, has been doing. And so then you have uh, this kind of cracking, rumbling sound um, starting to happen. You start to see like things start to fall from the buildings. And uh, Fairfax is like, what is that rumbling? What's going on? And they're talking about you know, the vibrations and musical instruments. If they strain the main support column. <laughs> and then Sienna, of course, is like it hasn't been acting out of revenge or to harm anyone. It's trying to scare them out. All the, all the incidents were a warning, Fairfax, a warning about this. Now the building is starting to crack in half, and the top half is about to, you know, topple over. So it, it, it ends with a little bubble, a sound filled the city night, the sound of a building dying, as its great steel girders rend and screech like the long scream of a man plunging to his doom. So that was an interesting little story, I thought. Uh, like, it's an interesting kind of ghost story. It, it, again, it reminds me of The Shining in a lot of ways with the blood and stuff. Hey, you, get, you get that a lot, like Friday or uh, Nightmare on Elm Street too, um, or I mean, as well, not the second one, but probably all of them. About just blood coming out of things, whatever. That's pretty common. But the elevator opening with the blood rushing out, I was like, okay, like that's pretty crazy. Uh, but I, yeah, I liked it enough. That was an interesting story there. Um, you know, I, I think after night one with the blood, I'd probably be out of there, but it wouldn't be an interesting story without it. Um, and so, but yeah, I guess the story is everyone died. So we end there and uh, <laughs> uh, the art is absolutely, it's wonderful. I mean, all the art in this book is, it's great. Um it's very, and actually the next story is interesting because it's not the arc's bad. It's just very, very different. Um, and we'll get into that in a sec. But yeah, I thought this was great. There's a lot of like, what I was talking about before with the snapper, where it, the details kind of get lost in how busy it is. This one's very busy when the blood and stuff is happening and you see the ghost. And all, but it's very clear as to what you're seeing uh, for the most part. And uh, it doesn't really ever get too muddled. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's it's great art. They did a fantastic job here, and it's definitely a, definitely a nice addition to uh, to this book. Although, I think I think I can. I'm spoiler alert. Just go ahead and say we're done with the we're done with the hell uh, visions of hell. Um, 
story theme, so it did not carry out through the whole thing. Although some of the things that happen here are pretty hellacious. So uh, we've got the next story has to do with something like that. And so we'll go ahead and head there now and talk about this art. The story is A Nightmare to Remember, Night with a K. Now we've got this lizard-like demon creature something, a monster, I don't know, whatever, crawling up the side of this castle into one lone window, which leads to the bedroom of a uh, a woman, I guess. I can't tell if it's supposed to be like a young girl or a grown woman. It's okay. I think it's a grown woman. Um, so she wakes up. Uh, sounds like from a. I can't. I I can't gather if she's waking up from the sounds because there's not. There's no like sound, you know, bubbles or anything like that or boxes. Uh, so I'm assuming she's just feeling the presence of something. Well, it's one of those beds that has the top. The top whatever you call it. it. It's got the covering on top and it has the bedposts that come down and the drapes and all that. I'm sure there's a proper name for it. I don't know what it is. Uh, he's actually holding himself up inside of that top thing, like looking down on her. And she freaks out, of course. But he does say that you, I have that effect on little ones. And again, that was where my confusion was because it seems like a grown woman based on the art, but whatever. Well, he starts to catch on fire and he's in response to her... Um, when she wakes up, she talks about how cold it is and how she's feeling chills. And he says, you know, why don't you permit me to warm you? And he catches on fire. And so she starts screaming for her mother. Uh, she's falls off the bed. She's running away. Now at this point, this, uh, the entity is just this huge ball of fire and light in the bed. And he talks about, you know, don't you maybe you wouldn't be so scared if you just thought of this nocturnal visit as nothing more than a rather vivid nightmare. And so the girl's crawling for the door at this point. And she's like, I don't believe you, demon. You know, I know why you've come. So he says, and I wanted so much for us to be friends, Miss, my, my young princess. Well, as she's getting to the door, this sort of like, like light force field thing covers the door. So she tells him, you know, I know that you're here to consume me. And he's like, well, then you also know you have not the faintest prayer of eluding what fate has in store for you tonight, the final night of your nights. So he lifts her like off the ground and this puddle of like steaming goop opens up underneath her and she starts, he starts to like lower her into it and he does. Well, out of that, a chain link armored fist punches out of it uh, or chain mail rather, not chain link. Um, and it's this knight <laughs> rising out of it. He's got a sword and he claims that the child was a a clever deception, uh, the the work of a white magic spell. So he's here to slay the demon, send it back to hell. Demon freaks out, and just as the knight is about to execute the demon, from the demon's point of view, it's screaming, no, no, and then you see a little demon all curled up on a rock, asleep, saying no, and you have, hush, Mephizo, hush, you'll awaken the whole coven. And it is this young demon with his mother and he's telling her about the nightmare you know everything that just happened and she's like patience my fizzo we will find you a human child on the morrow <laughs> you're merely suffering from the gnawing rigors of hunger hold me close mother i seem to have been beset by chills demon slayer indeed child what a fanciful dreamer i brought into the world the end but off in the corner you do see the 
gloves and like legs of a knight hiding hiding behind a rock and a glowing holding a glowing sword. So they're about to get theirs. Anyway, uh, the interesting thing for me, it's a very, very short story. The interesting thing for me in this one is the art is like, it's so strange. Um, It almost looks like airbrush art um, because there's no, like there aren't defined lines like there are. I I don't know how to describe it. It's almost like it was half computer, half airbrush, but I, I don't think that would have been the case back then. So I, I'd be really interested to research. Um, yeah, I actually forgot to read the credits. Sorry. It's, uh, but the art was by Buzz Vaults and it is written by Carrie Bates. Uh, but yeah, I need to look up Buzz Vaults and see what else he's done. And just a, a quick Google search here led me to, uh, he hasn't really done a lot. Um, he's, he was active for uh, three years. It looks like and mostly sticking to, like, he did a few issues of Creepy, a few issues of 1984. Uh, he did a couple of issues of Eerie. So that's, uh, huh, yeah, and very interesting. But it does say that he uses an airbrush technique, and that's all I can, I, that's all I can get on him. Um, so very interesting. But, yeah, I, I don't recall ever seeing his art before uh, picking up this issue. But uh, very interesting indeed. And But uh, we'll go ahead and move on to the next story, which is The Clockmaker. And it's written by Gary Knoll with art by Jay Blasquez. This story is narrated by the caretaker of a man named Anton Korba, who's an, el- an elderly man um, who our narrator is just coming at his wit's end with. Uh, he's very cold, very... Um, not he's not emotional. He's not a very nice person. Not very pleasant. Uh, but he's been serving in this house for you know a very long time. So um, he describes this old man as being cruel um, and apparently not being paid either. So I'm like, dude, just run. So at this point, he despises this man. He keeps on going in his room at night. Like he talks about how he starts. He's got a um again. He's an old clockmaker, so he's got all these clocks around. He's got this this constant like ticking and whirring and all these sounds that come from these old clocks, and it's just driving the guy nuts. Well, he keeps um going in his room at night, like like as if he's gonna like he's gonna kill him, and he he can't bring himself to do it. And Anton will wake up and kind of catch him, and over time, he. He starts to, well. He starts talking about how you know he's got a you know he's been praying to God and Satan, uh, neither of which would actually do it, but he's been praying for his death, uh, the death of Anton Corbin, and um, but it's not happening. So he's going to take matters into his own hands, and for he, he's discovered the old man's secret. That uh, and I'll just read it. Anton Corba, it's not Corbin, it's Corba. Okay, uh, Anton Corba's clever clockmakers hands had replaced his withered organs with immortal cogs and wheels and mainsprings. He would live forever unless I killed him. So this is where he's like, okay, it's okay that I kill him because he's not human anymore. He's completely replaced his parts with mechanical parts. And he's kind of talking himself into why it's more reasons why it's okay that he kills Anton. And at some point he does, he he kind of has in his mind, he thinks that Anton's realized that this caretaker knows the secret. And so he stops sleeping. But every time he goes in the room, this, the ticking just gets louder and the whirring sound gets louder. 
he keeps impl- he keeps uh, just begging the reader to say, look, I- I'm not a bad person. I would never harm a human. I wouldn't do this, but this is special. Like, you've got to, whatever. So Anton stops sleeping. And so at midnight one night, he goes in the room. Anton's sitting awake. He's got, like, a rat and, like, a roach on his head. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with that. Um, he also mentions that he could tell that Anton is just afraid. He, he knows that he's afraid, like, that, that his death is coming. So... He has this vision of the Grim Reaper coming to him, telling him to kill Anton, to rid, rid mankind of this unclean counterfeit. And he's, he's kind of shooken up for a little bit, but then he, he kind of snaps out of it and realizes this is what he's supposed to do. He has to do it. And I'm not sure. All right. Well, you don't see it, but it looks like he, he stabbed him to death. Um, and then he wraps him up. And actually, he tell, he, he's telling the reader that he actually tried explaining all of this to Anton to get him to understand. I'm like, Jesus, that's psycho. Um, so he wraps up Anton in his mattress and sheets and all that. Actually, it's a little confusing. He doesn't wrap him up. It's like he, I'm not really sure what what's going on here. It's like he t- rolls the mattress off the bed in order to get the man off the bed so he can, basically what he does is he pulls up some of the uh, wood planks from the floor and buries the body under there. And it just you know, kind of covers him back up. So he gets down and he, he, you know, he's listening for a sound. He doesn't hear any of the ticking or whirring or any of the gears moving. And so he's going to um, cut him open and repurpose all those parts to make them into clocks, basically. And he's like, but oddly enough, I found nothing. His internal machinery had disappeared. It was almost as though it had never been there. But of course, I knew otherwise. Very perplexing. I decided... Finally, that his body must have somehow absorbed or assimilated his false com- his false components at the moment of death. What else? What else could have happened to him? So then he gets a knock at the door, and it's the police uh, constables, and they are they were a neighbor reported a scream from next door. So they you know they're at the door, they're investigating, and uh, this caretaker says he's never he didn't hear a scream, but they're welcome to come in for tea or whatever coffee, and they they decline, but they do come in and they sit. And he's just kind of showing them around the house, like checking out all the uh, all the work, all the clocks and all that stuff. They're really impressed, really into it. And then he starts to get really nervous. Um, he kind of starts losing it. He starts like babbling on. Um, they kind of start looking at this guy like he's crazy. He apparently starts, he says, it was very strange saying words that had no meaning, like a foreign language. And I wish they would have put some of those words on page because I don't, I don't know what he was saying. Like he's just going on and on. He's lost his mind. He says, I was caught in the grip of something wholly uncontrollable, like one of those religious, or sorry, like one of those religious persons who suddenly speaks in tongues. On and on I babbled, the words simply poured out of me, nonsense words, and I thought they'd never stop. But they did stop finally, leaving me confused and exhausted. And then it all became clear. I knew what had happened. The language it had been speaking was the native speech of Anton Corba, a foreigner by birth, and that awful queasiness. I knew what that was, too. Madness. Madness. Anton Corba's horrid bits of machinery were now inside of me. I could hear the frenzied ticking and whirring of tiny little wheels. For the rest of, for the rest of my life, that sound would be with me, in me, an inescapable con- contamination of my humanity. So he starts shouting as the police are coming towards him. He's like, he did it. Anton Corba, he turned me into a clockwork creature. Now I'm just like him. Just like him. Don't you understand? The end. And that's actually the end of the entire issue. Um, it's really, <laughs> it's a very strange little uh, tale. It's very, uh, like, 
with this, it's like, did he just go crazy and kill this guy? But at the same time, Anton Korba wasn't sleep. He wasn't sleeping. He was up, you know, animals crawling all over him and stuff. And um, so I guess you're kind of left to wonder, was the ticking and worrying inside uh, this guy's head or was it? I don't know. I, I guess that's the whole thing is that he's insane. He, he's realizing he's insane, too, and he starts going nuts, but he still thinks that he's some kind of clock monster. Uh, so it is, But it was a fun little, uh, I don't know, it's a fun read. I like the way it's narrated. There's not a lot of dialogue. You're really just reading him uh, going further into madness, and then there's that panel where it all clicks when he's like convinced that Anton Korb is made out of clock pieces uh, on the inside. So... Um, but it's a fun one. I, uh, I I mean, I actually had a good time with this one. The uh, the weird demon sleeping one was a strange one to me. But uh, anyway, yeah. But I, no, it's uh, it's a fun issue. Uh, I, again, I love the cover. Going back to it, the um, it's the just that demon face, like I was saying before, with the horns and all that stuff. It's just a it's a very creepy, hence the name cover. Uh, very uncomfortable demon face there to look at. Uh, but yeah, I dig it. The rest of it, there's a whole bunch of ads in the back of this for like Star Wars toys and Doctor Who novels and buttons and all kinds of stuff. It's fun to look at these because it's just old toys. And it's like the original stuff being advertised and you can like cut out the thing and send in your money for them. Um, it's just, it's I, I like, that's one of my favorite parts of these books. It's just looking through the old ads and all the back issues and stuff they list there. But uh, no, it's fun. So um, I dig it. I hope you enjoyed the issue. Um, I, again, I don't know if I'm, how I'm going to continue with this format. I'm going to keep doing it like this. Uh, it's definitely not as fun necessarily doing it like this without another person, but I enjoy reading the issues and kind of talking about them. I say fun. I have a good time doing it, but um, the uh, with the radio play style, it's like I never know where it's going to kind of go until it's all kind of wrapped up together. So there's pros and cons, but really, I just want to have an enjoyable show that I have a good time doing and that you can have a good time listening to. So please, I'm, I'm asking you, if you if you listen and you and you care to, please uh, send me a message on Twitter, uh, at Horror Comics Pod, or message me, um, I've got uh, horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your uh, input about... Uh, everything and like kind of which way you like better because I think I can swap it up to do both um, and just kind of see where the pieces fall. A friend of mine had the idea because I was kind of asking him, I was like, I don't really know which way to go with it. Like I'm kind of torn and he was like, well, you could just have, and I might do this. He's like, you could just have ep- episodes that are labeled in such a way where it's going to be like uh, the name of the issue and then radio play next to it so it's uh, you know the listeners can if you if you like the show but maybe you like them more just kind of walking through the history and like kind of summarizing the story um then you'll kind of know which ones to avoid and which ones to listen to so we'll see how it goes you know i don't want to get too complicated uh in that sense of categorizing shit but uh anyway again please hit me up let me know and continue to send your suggestions got a lot of cool stuff on twitter this past week uh suggested and i'm gonna check some of that out and um See where it falls, but uh, until next time, you all keep reading horror comics, and as always, stay spooky. Oh, 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 oh,